Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Kelsey Colley. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. Is to my, my other thing is like in the airplane, like I think it's rude as hell to lean your seat back. I don't think you get any sort of gain in uh, comfort whatsoever. You just disturb the person behind you. Totally. Yeah. So like if I'm sitting in my seat and I see someone come in with the neck roll thing, uh-huh. like, oh no, I know, I know I'm in for bad times. Totally. But yeah, you get this kind of like gray area where they got the backpack plus the neck roll. Eh. <laughs> Well, because the backpack, as long as it fits under the seat in front, I feel like is a really like good practice to have. Now, if you have one of those backpacks and then you're like one of those jerks that has to put it up above, then you've completely negated the coolness of the backpack factor. <laughs> well, okay, that that's totally me because this mm. past week I only took a backpack to uh, where was I, Boston, DC, wherever the hell I was. Little attendants were like, "Hey, you need to put your bag under your seat." Like, this is all I brought. Like all these people that brought like three things of luggage. They're the terrible people. I'm gonna put my bag up top. I love how in your stories you're always the hero and never the villain, Scott. Oh like, no, no, I was definitely being the villain. I was taking up space up top, but uh, also don't care. Well, Kelsey, uh, thanks for joining us today. And, uh, <laughs> hey guys, <laughs> I don't, I don't think uh, you and Scott have met before, so mm. but hello. Hi, Scott. How are you? Hey, Kelsey. Sorry you had to hear this like terrible version of me. First thing. It's okay. It's okay. I'm okay with it. I had to. Do you travel. have any hot opinions about? You have any hot opinions about traveling? I do. Yeah. Well, I had to travel with a poster, which I decided I'm never doing again. Oh my adult yes. Life. And it's just awkward. People want to know what it is. Can you get it out? No, I'm not getting it out. Where do I put it on a plane? It's with the guitars. I was like, all right, this is. <laughs> and I was in the front of the plane, so to go get my poster, I had to do. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. When we landed, all the way to the back where there was space to come back. <laughs> it was just. It was rough. It was a rough look. That sounds atrocious. Yeah. And the worst part, because I know from experience, is if you do take the poster out, getting it back in is nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. To to like without wrinkling it and all that. I mean, it's 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 really difficult. It is challenging. I think we took it down this year and just shoved it right through the top of like one of those trash cans with a small hole. Yeah. We, yeah. Well, what are you gonna What are you gonna do with that post? Are you gonna frame it and like put it over your bed? Like, really? Okay. Okay. To be fair, you know, when you first do a poster, let's say I don't know how old y'all are when you're in graduate school or an undergrad, and you get that first poster, you're like, I'm the coolest. I'm the smartest person. <laughs> and now I'm like, I can't believe I have to print this thing out. Well, so I want to come back to the the traveling component because we we're talking about how people who use backpacks are the most, you know, the best travelers out there um, if they don't have any kind of wheels on their luggage or anything like that. But I, I think you're you're pretty into camping, Kelsey. So are you a backpack traveler or like what what what's your go-to move? This is gonna be this is exposing a lot about myself. I I'm sort of a princess when it comes to traveling. Like I have, if I'm gone oh, for two days, yes. I've got the world's biggest suitcase checked. I bring a bag. <laughs> I've got my, my personal item. I'm terrible. I do the backpack thing. I do make it fit under the seat in front of me, but I'm a big person. I'm six foot. I've got long legs. So I'm already taking up so much space. I try to be mindful, but yeah, I bring a lot with me. Do you do like the that neck was- roll and like the like the big like uh, jogging suit? No, no neck roll, but I am pretty comfortable. I love airport culture. For me, it's like a oh, yes. Home. Germs don't exist. I'm on the floor. It's disgusting. 
drinking and eating at no cost. I'm like, I don't even know what money is anymore. Oh, and people drinking at like seven in the morning too. Mm-hmm. It's, there's like no rules. It's international oh, waters for sure, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's good. It's a refreshing place to be every once in a while. <laughs> so, but okay. So you got this like uh, princess traveler, like sort of like uh, orientation, but right. also backwoods, totally fine. Uh, campfire. Yeah. yeah, I love camping, man. It's like, I'm, I'll do it as much as I can in the summer. Don't like to be cold. But the thing about it is I'm, I'm terrified of the dark. <laughs> like once it gets dark and we have to lay in the tent and it's quiet. I'm like white noise on my phone, white noise on my partner's phone. I'm up listening. Like the, I know where the flashlight is, where the bear mace is. I'm terrified the whole time. And I don't, I'm like, does this ever pass? And I look over, like my partner just <laughs> laid down. She's mouth open, mouth breathing, snoring, asleep. And I'm terrified. Oh, mouth breather. Ugh. <laughs> I know, it's in a tent too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so are, is it, is the fear factor, is it, is it the bears? Like, what is it like that that's making you scared? Yeah, I think bears, that bears are a part of it, but I, the, gosh, aliens get me too, which is <laughs> just like, and I don't even, I don't even know if I believe like what, what happened to me, but I watched signs way too young that, you remember that? Yes. Movie? Yeah. Oh my God. We yeah. are the same person. I'm the same way. Keep going, please. Yeah. Well, it traumatized me. I was like afraid of like, it was terrible. So we were camping last summer and uh, we're, there's no phone service and there's four of us and there was a lunar eclipse. So we're like, this is pretty sick. Like, how cool is this? We're out here. We can see it. And it's kind of spooky. And then it gets dark and we're all, you know, drinking a couple of beers around the campfire. And I'm sitting across from two people and they're looking above my head, terrified. And I'm like, oh, what's behind me? Like, there's something behind me in the sky. So we all turn around and there's like, so don't, don't blow the surprise if you know it. There's a string of lights traveling in this like very unique pattern then they all disappear once they reach a certain point in the sky and we had never seen it before and we're people are shaking like freaking out and I was like that's got to be a satellite I was so I just said out loud hey guys that's a satellite like we're fine we're not getting abducted this isn't the end of everything but I wasn't confident in that and so I pretended like I was cool, calm and collected. And then at the end of the night, when everyone was going to bed, I was like, Hey, can we sleep in the car? Like just in case (laughs) (laughs) like aliens couldn't get in the car. And then the next morning we got to service in this little podunk town. And I'm like, immediately, as soon as my phone would read anything, I'm Googling string of satellites. And I had never heard of Elon Musk's Starlink. Is that what it is? Starlink. Yeah. Terrified us. Terrifying. I do like the idea that aliens don't have the technology to open a car door. That, that, that is fascinating. I was like, the Subaru is going to save my life. I feel yeah. like the, the thing that, that saves you by being in the car is the car won't fit into the little beam up hole <laughs> where they're beaming you up. And so like, it'll keep hitting the whole top. And then you're like, all right, I guess we got to leave them because the car won't fit. <laughs> that's an interesting theory. I like that. that. That's what I'll think about next time I'm scared in camping. Like from like an evolutionist standpoint, like the dark is scary, right? Nighttime mm-hmm. is scary. Uh, as as you mentioned, like bears, wolves, coyotes, hearing them howl out mm-hmm. in the distance is like terrifying. It really is. Yeah, I, I'm like not equipped for hand to hand combat by any means, right? So I had gotten like a weird dark tangent last summer about bear mace, and. I hyper fixated on it for like three weeks. I was reading about bear mace all day long. My partner was like, if you bring up bears one more time, I swear you're sleeping <laughs> on the couch. I was like, okay. But 
we bring that with us now. It makes us feel a little safer. Have you ever gotten attacked by or at least seen a bear? No, like there's black bears <laughs> in Colorado and there's not that many of them. But uh, I was camping in the upper peninsula of Michigan and did hear like a group of pack of wolves pretty late at night. And mm. yeah. See, bears what, are what? the most terrifying animal. And it's because they're faster than you. They can swim better than you. They can climb more than you can. And there's literally, if they want to get you, they're going to get you. There's nothing you can do. So, right. I mean, that, like, I don't even know if bear mace works. Does it work? <laughs> so there's, like, some really interesting scientific studies, and they're all, like, small sample size, right? Like, anecdote stuff. But what's really interesting is that <clears throat> people tend to wait to spray it. They wait too long to spray. Mm, yeah. And you need to meet the bear in the middle with the mace or the bear spray. Uh, and they can charge at you in under two seconds. So like by the time you're like, where's my bear mace? Can I take the safety off? Spray it. Typically they leave, but I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to know. You're not supposed to run either. Stand your ground with the bear. Right. Yeah. They say use like a I thought you played tunnel. dead. Aren't you supposed to play dead? I think like protectively dead, like an active dead. Like <laughs> <laughs> you do power poses. That's what we learned, right? A few years ago. Don't do that, Scott. If you see a bear, no more power posing. <laughs> No. Yeah, Marcus Corday said that it doesn't work in the workplace, <laughs> and I guess it doesn't work on bears either. <laughs> well, let me let me introduce you really quick, Kelsey. Um, so Kelsey Colley, um, she is uh, doing people research, future of work, and employee listening at Zoom. Um, she has, in her professional career, has done uh, research around data-driven decision-making, diversity, equity, inclusion, employee listening, people analytics, and management consulting. Uh, she holds a master's degree in IOSYC from Colorado State University and is currently in the final stages of wrapping up her PhD with her dissertation on emotional labor at work. So welcome, Kelsey, and thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, maybe we, maybe we can start out by talking about the, you know, some of what what is the future of work and like is now the future? Is the future 20 <laughs> years from now? Is it six months from now? Like, what are we talking about? And and how does that play a role in, in kind of your day job? Yeah, I got to be honest, and I do share this, right? I was interviewing for a couple of roles that uh, mentioned future of work, and I was just straight up, I don't like this term. I think it's, I don't know what it means. I don't think anyone knows what it means. And so typically, when I meet people and they want to do future of work stuff, I ask them, you know, what do you, what topics are you thinking about when you think about future of work, right? So some people are like, uh, you know, robots taking over jobs. Other people think really specifically, you know, I've run into a lot of people who focus primarily on where work is done. So office, remote, mm -hmm. hybrid. I don't, I don't love the term and I, I don't know what a better replacement might be, but I always try to talk about people. So like your talent, their preferences, their identities, the tools that you have at work. So your technology, um, if you're selling products and you're able to test those internally as well, and then the work itself. So you think about like task type, job roles, levels of interdependency, and those three areas are what I try to get people to think about dynamically. I mean, like the prediction is the name of the game and like future of work is just a killer marketing term, right? To talk yeah. about how people work, where people work, all this sort of stuff. Like what, what areas do you typically focus on when you think about these sort of terms? Yeah, I think I'm trying to get people to move past just where we work 
and breaking mm. down some of those myths about, you know, being in the office. It's so, it's so top of mind right now. It, yeah, yeah, it really is. And it, it's scary for, I think, a lot of people, right? So if we think about pre-COVID, we didn't have as much remote work, right? But also the switch to whatever working was like during the pandemic was forced. Mm. You had to do it quickly. You didn't have time to do research and plan. Now we're at a spot where like, we have the time to think carefully about this stuff and study it before we make choices about, about work arrangements and preferences. But I think really asking the questions about what are our assumptions we're making and do we have internal evidence to suggest that that's true, right? So like people who are interested in increasing collaboration suggest that being in office is better. So I always ask, do we have, you know, internal evidence to suggest that that's so exciting? You know, how did you learn that? And typically you'll find that people who are either higher in political power in the org or have been in industry longer are more comfortable in the office. And so pushing on those myths and those assumptions is, is what I typically try to do in a friendly way, but I definitely have a point of friction. Yeah. When I, when I think about this and it, you, you titled it very appropriately, they're more comfortable in the office. And what I mean by that is they're more likely to be a person who has an office, not a cube, not an open <laughs> desk. Yes. And I bet you if you cut the data by people who can close their door versus people who don't have a door at all, that right. <laughs> whether or not they want to go back is probably substantially different. Yeah, and you think about it too, like if you're a senior leader or somebody with uh, informal power, you go to the office, you're going to have a good day. People like to see you. They're going to come shake your hand. Yep. Very different for like a young professional who's never worked in an office forced back. So challenging some of those assumptions is fun. Um, or do, do these, these terrible arrangements where people are just like thrown into like one long table together, like the idea that they're going to collaborate more just naturally. And the, the actual research shows that they just wind up uh, putting their headphones in and uh, messaging back and forth. Like they don't actually talk more. Yeah, it's a good marketing tool for Bose headphones, you know? <laughs> yeah, actually, I wanted to share with you guys. I don't know if you've seen the speaker that has like geolocation sound input. No, what does that mean? I don't think my chief people officer yesterday showed me this. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me sharing some of his secrets, but it's this uh, speaker that goes above your computer. looks like a big bar and it's got your camera in the middle, but you could talk in the middle of your screen. And then by the time you step out of focus, it cuts off the audio from that location. And so Whoa. like if your dog is barking in the room next to you, yes, but he's not in the camera, it cuts the sound. And I think that that is like a really interesting way to work from home but when you're in the office it's not really an option so if you're having a call next to somebody in these open like modern yeah offices, it's just not i don't think it's super great for for the goal of the office so that that helps the people on the other end of the call but it doesn't help you like i find it <laughs> terribly uncomfortable to hold the call next to somebody else mm -hmm. i don't know if you do it at home when when my partner yeah, absolutely here, like, shutting the door and yeah yeah, I was but, just but, thinking, I was like, I like to continue talk when I go off screen. And so I feel like that's actually going to hinder me. <laughs> Do you wander around frequently when you're on a Zoom call? or? <laughs> yeah, when I'm not on like one that's being recorded, that's going to go out to the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. But, but Bose well, headphones, another massive travel hack. and Definite necessity. Oh yeah, Bose headphones in the backpack. You're you're on point. Yep. One one thing I, I wanted to kind of switch gears here though, uh, Kelsey, because I, I feel like you did a, a really good job educating me recently on this. Was this term? First of all, I feel like this term came out of nowhere. Maybe I've been living under a rock, but the term neurodiversity. 
And what does it mean? Um, and, and I know you've done some research in this space, so feel free to, to kind of reference that research, but what should people who are in the field of people analytics or IO psychology, what should they be thinking about in terms of neurodiversity? What is it? And how can companies, you know, from like a DEI lens, be thinking about neurodiversity from trying to win the war for talent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have to break it to you. You have been living maybe under a rock for a little bit of, of your time. So this term, I think, really means a lot of things to different people. So like most social movements, civil rights movements, terminology is key for getting people involved. And even within this, I would say social movement beyond IO and people analytics, that people have strong opinions about what this term means and doesn't mean, right? So some folks think it's just, you know, cognitive differences. Some people say you have to have a disability diagnosis to be neurodiverse or neurodivergent. And yeah. others say, you know, it's really any variation in the trait and experience. So ADHD, autism, um, and everything else, but it really came to light in like an academic sense in the late 1990s from Judy Singer. Um, and since then, we've seen a big shift in the workplace science beyond what we would call a medical model. So, you know, before we were saying, you know, you need a diagnosis, something's wrong with you, um, and we need medicine or therapy to fix that, which is kind of sad if you think about it, right? Like, we don't do that to other different identities in any way. Uh, we shouldn't. And so, when I meet with orgs or consult in this space or do the research, it's really differentiating between, you know, this is a, a welcoming social movement in the workplace and not necessarily something where we want to reduce the traits or expressions of neurodivergent people. Um, and that's typically where I start. And I think folks have a lot of questions about, you know, how autistic are you? So I'm autistic, I have ADHD, and I share with people, I'm high masking. So to be successful at work, I know I need to fit in in social situations. I need to be able to um, play the political game. That takes a lot more work for me than a typical typical uh, person. And so when I hear people say, you know, you don't seem that autistic or you're not very high up on the spectrum, it's really reducing some of those, what we would call microaggressions, right? Or just folks who don't know the right language. Uh, we're really trying to not do this like high and low autism thing anymore. We're just trying to say there's different profiles, different characteristics. Um, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one and bringing that into measurement, right? So from an IO perspective, if you want to do group differences, it's kind of challenging. Yeah, and what do you mean when you say when you want to do group differences, what do you mean? Yeah. So one, if you think about traditional diversity, equity, inclusion, most folks think of race and gender, right? And veterans or people with disabilities. What's really interesting about neurodiversity is neurodivergent folks interact with the world and perceive the world and sense the world differently. And that's a psychological difference, right? And we don't see those or expect there to be those with other demographic categories typically, right? Besides examples like cognitive ability having adverse impact. But with neurodiversity, if you wanna look at group differences between those who identify and don't, you really might see it there when you have a validated measure because we don't test measurement and variance in this space yet at all, really. So. An example of this might be, you know, this is where our research rests is on assessment, right? One of the easiest, clearest measurement areas that IOs know about. And what we're seeing is that traditional validated measures of cognitive ability, of structured interviews, they have inequitable outcomes. And it's not because it's job, you know, job-related information. It's because neurodivergent folks and people like me perceive structured interview questions differently. And then our responses mm -hmm. to that, right? 
are different. Um, and it's just really, really interesting to think about what this could mean for employing listening programs, uh, selection, if you're auditing, you know, the employee life cycle to see uh, like a barriers analysis and promotions. I don't see it happening a lot. I don't know about you if you've done probably not neurodiversity measurement and variance. Yeah. No, 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 but it, it, it makes total sense, like structured interviews or just interviews in general, you're asked to come in and, you know, talk about your previous skills, et cetera. But a large component of that is like your ability to communicate and do people like you. And mm -hmm. if, if yeah. you are not, say, particularly social or uh, perhaps uh, think differently, mm -hmm. that could really hamper your ability to get a job, be employed, et cetera. Well, like, let me get really practical for a second of like, you know, one of the typical pieces of feedback you give someone to like say, hey, interview better is like, read the room, right? Well, is that, yeah. that's probably a lot more challenging to a neurodiverse person than if you're just saying, hey, you know, you're just like me. Well, I'm, I'm maybe I'm not just like you. Maybe I don't know what that means. Um, but I, I did want to get kind of into one of the research paper, papers you sent over and how it relates to this kind of invariance and inequitable outcomes point about you, it was called examining the use of game-based assessments for hiring autistic job seekers. So what it, what do game-based assessments do that maybe traditional structured interviewing or cognitive or regular assessments don't do that could help um, mitigate some of these gaps? Yeah, this is a really interesting research question that's still ongoing. One of the major components of something, you know, Scott just mentioned, it reduces that social dynamic relationship between you and someone else or you and something you're not familiar with. And what's really interesting and outside of IO uh, through developmental psych uh, education, gamification is used quite a bit for coaching and training and understanding autistic people in general. So mm -hmm. it's a good fit in that capacity as well. And what we've seen is that gamification reduces a lot of the self-monitoring or masking behaviors that people might need to do in other assessments. And it allows you to just focus on the task that is at hand. And it's fascinating. So what we found is that we had a pretty large uh, sample of autistic candidates who were in college or recent grads, and then the general population group take two out of the three game-based assessments through higher view. Um, and what we found is that results are generally similar in a really good way. And so it's very promising to suggest that gamification, especially in cognitive ability or assessments, is a way to even the playing field and still predict important job information. I think what's really interesting is that gamification can also be applied in a lot of other settings besides, you know, selection assessment, especially in if you expand IO out of the traditional workplace into education, right? Gamification of assessments in the college level. It's fascinating to me how much of the barriers that we see in the workplace also exist in education and reducing some of that barriers is, is really the goal here. So other areas that we consider are you know, personality traits and hiring are really not great for people with disabilities. And so combining a lot of these different streams of research into one area, I think IO really picked it up about five years ago, but it's heading in a good direction. Well, why, why would that be the case? Why would personality traits not be great for people with disabilities in employment situation? Yeah, it's just less predictive of their success. So mm -hmm. it's just not predicting job performance in the same way. It's like interaction effect kind of thing. Yeah, it's just really interesting if you think about battery of selection assessments or some sort of hurdle programming, personality, if you had an interview that's face-to-face, -face, personality with non-gamified cognitive ability. You know, we haven't tested this, but I would assume that the inequity is not great right there. And it's scary to think about that, especially with the war on talent and 
this largely untapped talent pool. And so people have this assumption like, okay, now we want to start recruiting and retaining neurodivergent people. And we see the benefits of it, right? Because making a business case is awkward in general. But what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to get you know, leaders to do is assume you already have a team with neurodivergent people on it and start there, right? Like there's a good chance that 10 to 25% of your organization is neurodivergent, whether they have a formal diagnosis or not. Well, I think that it's it's critical in the future, like you go back to the future of work argument that you have uh, uh, points of view from various people. Like you can't just have a group think sort of culture. You need various inputs, you need uh, creative thinking, et cetera, to survive mm-hmm. as an organization. Like any way to get in that diversity of thought. Typically we talk about in DEI, typical context, male, female, various races, this sort of thing. But the the, the true diversity of thought comes from your mental patterns, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some really cool research on, and it makes sense to me. So I was diagnosed later in life, which is like not freaking super helpful for like my younger career self. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. this is why all this was like this. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm doing the me search, right? Which I think a lot of folks do, but it's interesting. So there's some cool research and I, I can't cite it off the top of my head on um, folks with ADHD being entrepreneurial, like really good at like this, like big idea. Yeah. And I can see that in myself, right? So I love a job that is slightly risky or in an industry that's slightly mm. risky. And I did not realize that, like I, I didn't articulate that until recently when I read this article and it's because we can, people with ADHD may be better at connecting all of these areas of the org in a creative yeah. way and challenge some of those, you know, previously held, this is just the way we do stuff and exposure to various aspects. And therefore you can start connecting dots across them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm very much in the school of thought of like the hidden superpowers of, of these kind of, kind of like neurodiverse conditions. And I, I love that thought. And I think, and I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on this, Kelsey, but I think that like, you could really, it's not just so much about like reasonable accommodations for people with kind of hidden disabilities, but it's like hidden superpowers. Like how are you leveraging this to get an outsized talent advantage for your organization? Right. So I'm going to push back on one thing here, if that's okay, Cole. I probably use the wrong word. I'm sorry. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that that's a really good point. Right. So the two things that come to mind are like this, the superpower conversation is really important because it makes the business case for folks who think differently, mm-hmm. right? Like they're they're really good at whatever, whatever, but it also pigeonholes a lot of these immature programs for neurodiversity hiring because they're like, okay, we need a bunch of males who don't make eye contact to do all of our computer science. And oh, really? you know what I mean? Like the stereotype of- <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so the nuances there are, the business case is kind of awkward to be like, hey, women with ADHD are really entrepreneurial. Like look at, despite her ADHD, she's got the superpower. Imagine if we said that about any other identity group. So, wow, Cole, despite you being a white male, you're still so good at your job. Like, it doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense to to talk about stuff that way anymore. How, how do you deal with that stigmatizing nature of that then? Like, at one point, you, you do want to bucket people. On the other hand, it's like, well, we don't want them to be negatively bucketed. <laughs> right. And I think there there is an appetite for people to treat people well, generally. And I, the business case is strong, so folks yeah. are leaning in. but. I think it's it's talking about, you know, traits are higher and lower in these profiles of people. So even with an ADHD, there are people who distribute or uh, display their traits differently, depending on the context, just like personality, right? And so it, it's complex and it's challenging, but Cole, you brought up something I wanted to circle back on is are trying to challenge 
some of these, the use of the business case in general, and just try to, instead of making it like a special version of selection or, or recruitment um, and accommodation, really, it's just built in and ingrained, right? So <clears throat> I was on a call the other day with somebody who is building a research, a big research program in this area. And they were saying, we got to accommodate these people. We got to accommodate, accommodate. We got to build accommodations in. And there's couple of things that are really challenging with accommodations in the workplace. And the research is clear, pretty clear on this, right? Like people don't want to disclose all mm -hmm. the time and there's yeah. different levels of disclosure and it's scary, right? Like it's just really scary to do. And I always do because um, I don't know. I don't know if I have like no self-preservation, but like even in the interview phase, I'm like, hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm autistic. Just so you know, if I have social differences, um, you know, that it's a bit part of who I am that's worked out well for me, but moving beyond this accommodation thought process is really just ingraining accessibility into everything, right? Like if your slide deck can't be read by everyone at the org, you shouldn't have to remake the slide deck for one person. It should be built in the system of making a slide deck to make it accessible. Right. And it's oh, yeah, I think Michael not told us about that. That was something I wasn't even aware of when he was on the podcast a while back. Yeah, and it's not that hard, right? Like just run it through a, a, a accessibility tool and and add a descriptor of your image typically is, is an easy way to start. But just even some of the brightest people in the scientific space that walk into neurodiversity are, are taking it two steps back when they focus specifically on, you know, the business case and accommodations. And so here I am trying to push, push for something a little bit more mature and, and something that'll help not just autistic candidates, but anybody who doesn't like to make eye contact or has a little bit of a social difference in the workplace. You're treating um, people as people. I like it. It like shouldn't it. be this hard. <laughs> what, what a novel concept, right? I yeah. I think you, you told me, and I may be wrong about this, Kelsey, but that you're one of the few IOs or people analytics types that work at your organization. What is that like? And, and do you have any kind of learnings from being in that, you know, environment of being the lone person, but you know, like how do how do you cope? I guess. Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying I think it's really fun. I have always been in either startup organizations, um, either in tech or consulting, smaller groups, and now I'm at a tech company, which it, it feels like a startup, right? The quick nature and the speedy of, of innovation. I like it. Um, so all the teams I've ever been on actually have been young or small. So I don't know any different, but I think why it's fun and what it feels like is because you feel valuable, right? And there's only two IOs. Um, the context you can bring and your measurement skills and change management skills fit a lot of needs that may have not been there before. It, it is it is fun when like you're you're one of the few research and development or like IOs in a in a company. Uh, you refer to as like the brain you're looked upon like a wizard and it must be fascinating because like everything is fresh like everything is open to possibility you can delve into selection and uh, uh, job analysis culture leadership you know, all these sort of aspects that you know at a more mature company those things are already taken or like mm -hmm. you're just trying to like increase like the validity coefficient by 0 0.02 or something yeah. which is like super draining really it really is. Do you know the phrase, uh, God gives his hardest battles to his strongest soldiers or whatever that is? <laughs> no, no, I've never heard that. Y'all are from Texas, aren't you? Isn't that like a Southern? No, okay. 
so I like walk myself into these toughest battles and it, I really do like it. And so an example of this is I was on a small people analytics team and we were given access to the raw vendor employee listening data for the first time. Right. And so I had a hunch that I don't, I haven't seen the tech report for this, this mm -hmm. vendor, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's my favorite or what I would do with what they're calling drivers yeah. or how they display the data, get the raw data out, get a, some hands on our tech report. And the, the item loadings were like really small, like way too small to, I'm just not sure how people get away with this stuff. So I'm like, okay, let's rerun this with our own theoretical model. Right. So you basically on a whiteboard, we did, you know, what do you think that the driver is for these different outcomes? Can we add some items to maybe like boost up some of the, the constructs we're looking at? Month or so nominological later. validity. Yeah. Let's yeah, go after it. Was it was so fun. Yeah. It was really interesting. So you're creatively solving a problem <laughs> and we couldn't get rid of the vendor. Right. But we could really leverage the tool at hand based on, you know, EFA, CFA regression work. Um, it was fascinating and they didn't have that before. And so they were driving their action, spending millions of dollars to take action on some of these low drivers that had high impact. And I'm doing air quotes because they weren't, there was no, you know, no significant relationship uh, in, the, in terms of an effect size or the directional relationship that they were proposing wasn't necessarily true. And so- uh, well, Are you saying it wasn't directionally correct? Is oh. that is that what you're saying? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I am. Wow, I didn't think I would be able to plug that in here, but I did. Yeah, that's some, sorry, uh, kind of stepped on that hot factor analysis talk there, man. Yeah, Ooh, I, I mean, into I it. it. Yeah, get me all hot and bothered. <laughs> factor loading, oh. Oh rotations, rotations, Aramax. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, y'all want to step into the uh, confusion matrix? I I'm nervous, but I'm excited. Oh, don't be nervous. This is is all your opinion. It's all good. Uh, we haven't done like a rapid fire in a while. You game for that, Kelsey? I'm in, yes. How do you rate yourself on introspection? What's my scale? Eh, you know, one to excellent. Oh, excellent. I would say frequency <laughs> is very high. Definitely introspective, uh, maybe to a fault. I don't know how efficient it is, but it's always there. Same way. I'm very internally focused. Always kind of like criticizing myself and this sort of thing. What about you, Cole? Yeah, I'm I'm like always like I'm very self-critical. I'm not very good at doing something about it. Like it's probably gonna stay the same, but I definitely think a lot about it. High diagnosis, less less action. I like it. Thoughts on grit or persistence. This has come up a few different times. I'm talking about yeah. operas operationalization or personal either you know, whatever you think i'll yeah. start with personal it's such a weird compliment to tell someone that they're, they're resilient it's weird because you're like all the bad things that have happened to you <laughs> i love it all the crap that's yeah. in your head you're still smiling it's like thanks <laughs> well it, it goes along with your quote like you know the worst battles go to the best soldiers or whatever yeah. right it is a weird math formula if you think about it it's like you have to encounter adversity to get better. It's like, well, you know, your your initial reaction is like, well, I don't want to encounter that adversity. So I, I don't know. It is a weird equation. I saw a chart from, I think it was McKinsey, and I didn't read the report behind it, but 
and the x-axis was um learning and the y-axis was uh change or behaviors or something like that and at the highest mm -hmm. point of scale was adaptation so it was really about like if you can't learn from something which i think is what cole is saying if he doesn't apply no transfer of the the training maybe or reflection getting uh, psychoanalyzed here well done <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the most magnetic person that you know, who would that be? Oh, interesting. Mm. I don't think I have a good answer off the top of my head either. All, are we all looking at the ceiling or was it just Cole and I? <laughs> <laughs> We're all neurodivergent in our own way, but it just has to be the same way. Look at the ceiling. Actually, I, I do know a couple of people, like I won't mention them by name, but like we, we've had a couple on the podcast as well of just like, there's just like a draw to these people. Like, I don't know what they do exactly, but they got that like it factor to them. You know what the kids are calling that these days? Oh, uh, oh, wait, I do know. Is this the, not drip? What is it? What is riz? it? Riz? Riz. You got the riz. Yeah. 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 Like the end of charisma, the riz. Oh, Yeah. I know who mine is. It was my old boss. Um, hmm. He was chief people officer at my last company. I'm not going to name his name, but it was this weird thing where every time I would get on a phone call with a stranger, they were like, oh, you you work for so-and-so? I love them. Um, and when you hear that like one time, it's like, okay, this is cool. When you hear it on every call, you're like, this is weird. <laughs> like, why does everybody know this person already? But I mean, incredibly charismatic person. Yeah, I don't think I have a good answer. I, I I think there's people I think of that if they started a cult, I might follow them. But um, yes, <laughs> we had done some work and uh, it got published in HBR, uh, different authors. But essentially, they were showing that uh, these people that make gigantic strides in the network that they do like very simple things like making connections early and before they actually need something, they go just like. Oh, hey, Kelsey, nice to meet you. You're into you're camping. You hate bears. Go figure. You, you've seen aliens before. That's really interesting. So that when they do actually have a need later on, they can go back to them and there's already a personal relationship and they get things done much easier. I uh, love that synopsis of Kelsey. Seen aliens and loves bears. <laughs> that is, don't, I'm not going to put that on my LinkedIn. That's, please don't put that in the... <laughs> that's the that's tagline. That's the tagline, definitely. <laughs> uh are you able to anticipate the needs of others i think so i would say yes personally yes professionally sometimes things catch me off guard like especially when it comes to information people people want or insights they want from a analysis so like put, yeah. put a deck together think about the audience think about their skills what they're interested in what their kpis are and then they'll ask me a silly question like oh, this is really interesting, but have you ever considered like what people were wearing during the call? And would that predict performance? And it's like, um, <laughs> what? So the questions that's, they that's want wild. answered. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was, a, there was, there was another one too, that I was anticipating like what they were interested in, what they wanted to hear, how they were going to apply it. And they wanted to, to look at something completely, in my opinion, not, you know, not validated like smiles or something and not. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how to break the news that that's not going to work for, for you, but. <laughs> yeah. I had this really weird revelation during the pandemic that I have the male version of like resty bitchy face or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. I didn't RBF. know it until I, until I had a video on myself all day. Right. Because I, <laughs> I you don't get to see yourself at work. I'm like, Oh, this is why everybody hates me. It's because <laughs> like I have the worst 
face. <laughs> it's not my personality. It's not the way I work. Yeah. It's just my face. And so I smile so much more now that I'm on videos, but I'm not, not that I should have to do that. I just have a bad face. I don't know. This works really well for me because my face will tell you what I'm thinking. And so like, if you ask me to do something and it's a dumb question, my face will probably indicate that it's dumb. But over a video call like this, where you get instant feedback, I'm able to make sure that my face isn't rude or, yeah. you know, my jaw's not on the floor. Oh, I, I, I love these people that have no filter. <laughs> I love people Ooh. that have no filter. It's just so great. Just like, oh gosh. Okay. Final question. Uh, say you're queued up in a line. Can you keep calm? In a line? You- yeah. Mm, I think, okay. So I've got two examples on the top of my mind waiting for a restroom at PSYOP. I was like, what is happening? (laughs) So confused. I was in a line for 15 minutes. Blew my mind. Really? Yeah, it was wild. I was like, are there- In in Boston? Yes. Really? (laughs) I was like, is there full on networking happening in there? What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) It's the PSYOP party weren't told about. <laughs> I, I was thinking some stalls were getting destroyed or something, but you know, that was <laughs> post coffee. Post coffee. I don't know how people do lines. I guess just I stay away from Six Flags and Disneyland and all that. I can't do it. Oh, that's another level when it's mm. like the lines would be like an hour long or yeah. greater. Yeah. Are there children involved? What's the temperature? Well, Kelsey, are you ready to join us in the nerdery? Mm-hmm. I'm ready. <laughs> you don't sound ready. <laughs> I I feel like this is one of my favorite segments on the show. It, it, you just never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. So uh, you want me to kick this off, Cole? Yeah, kick us off with some MTurk stuff. MTurk, okay. So MTurk is in trouble, which is like really unfortunate. This has been an absolutely fantastic tool for researchers to collect data for 10 plus years, uh, but it's starting to show signs of uh, data quality issues. So there's an article, an MTurk crisis, uh, shifts in data quality and the impact on study results, which essentially shows that from 2015 to 2017, about 10% of MTurk cases were invalid, but that number's jumped from like 38 to 62% in 2018, 2019. And there was another study conducted in 2022 that showed of 529 MTurk responses, only 14 were actually human which is 3%, which we'll call that not good. Say that's not good overall. I'll go ahead and uh, say that. Uh, But this is also criticized because they didn't take precautions. But essentially, the study results essentially say that uh, if you're going to use MTUR, use use screening measures and validation questions to get your sample right. I am so glad this came out. I have never been a fan of MTUR. And it's finally there's proof. Like this is not Cole being having his data driven hat on here for a second. This is Cole being biased, but I was like, <laughs> I hated it since day one. I'm like, finally, somebody confirm my pre-existing belief that MTurk sucks. Well, in 2014, there's all these studies came out saying it was great, great mm-hmm. work, just as well as anything else. I use it for my dissertation. It's I cite that paper in my dissertation because I use MTurk, and so, but you know, it, what sucks about that? So I'm thinking about you know, access to good research or access to being a participant in the scientific community, it costs more money to use the screening stuff on MTurk, like to validate participants and- Does it? Yeah, yeah, you have to, it costs more to do it. So if you're a low budget university or you've got a small grant or penalized for 
but you know what? We, we launched my dissertation and the next day I was like, my dissertation collection, we're doing it. Finally. I had 600 bots out of a thousand the next day because I forgot to click. <laughs> and I was like sad. And you could see too, cause you get the IP address and it's like the other side of the world, not within my, you know, screening questions in the U S but I don't know. I don't know if I, I was paying uh two dollars per response and this it should have taken like 10 to 15 minutes for a response and i got one back and it was like 12 seconds and i got an and i was like this is invalid it's going to invalidate that and i got a response back from like an angry user like hey what the hell i'm not i'm sending you a thing and you're not going to send me my money and i wrote back something snarky to the effect of like it's taking me longer to write this email than you actually took answering my survey essentially yeah. uh, shove off this sort of thing it's just an arms race between the cheaters and the hackers and the bots and trying to do good research. And they just don't like that equation, honestly. What, what is it good for? I mean, like, uh, like theory building or like collecting ideas. Like, what could you actually use this for? MTurk? Yeah, yeah. Here's my thought on MTurk. So I think it's, it's hard to build organizational partnerships that want to share data, right? Like, that's we know that, especially if you're an, a graduate student. I think MTurk is especially helpful for event sampling. If you can get people to sign up for daily, yeah, events, uh, right? That's a good way to like keep people involved. Uh, that you know, use all that screening stuff, have attention check questions. Um, but you know, if it's just a cross-sectional sample, it's hard to imagine that you couldn't snowball some other way. Or you know, it's a lower burden on an organization to do a cross-sectional. Big burden to sign some folks up for fourteen days every day, twice a day. It's a good point. It's a good point. Do you do y'all have any like favorite like uh psychometric like lie questions? Like <laughs> questions to screen out people? I used to see some like uh I ride a unicorn to work. I I thought that was good. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right. Yeah, I, I, used to, I can't remember what it was called, but a few years ago I used a scale. I was like, it was something like completely unreasonable answers to questions or something. <laughs> I, I'm I'm messing up the name, but it's like, I've never told a lie. It's like, okay, George Washington. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come on. I, I get paid Ugh. by a leprechaun out of a pot of gold. You know, Scott, this is like really, my gears are turning now because I use really boring ones in my dissertation. Like, uh, please select B for this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. no. It's time to get creative. I know. Next time. <laughs> Do you ever use attention check at work? Do you use it with a org sample ever? I don't do a whole lot of a survey design anymore, but I used to. And we would have questions like, I, I never speed. And, you know, we had like a whole like lie scale. And like, if you like, I can't remember what the rules were, but if you like failed like eight of 10 of them or something like that, then you're invalid yeah. or something like that. And we just do checks for like, if everybody put A for every answer or D for every answer and stuff like that too. There, there's a uh, R package that will handle all this sort of stuff, like response bias. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but well, if we find it, we find it. Well, uh, the next one we had was um, it's not really a paper, but it was just a good find from an IBM slide from 1979. <laughs> and, and what the IBM slide said, a computer can never be held accountable. Therefore, a computer must never make a management decision. And I feel like this is incredibly relevant <laughs> in terms of all the generative AI stuff I'm seeing out there. Like, 
Mm -hmm. Oh, the best use case is like, what if humans never made decisions ever again? It's like, well, that sounds like a terrible idea, but I love the logic behind this. And I, again, I, I didn't come to this conclusion myself, but it's, it's very reasonable, which is if you can't be held accountable to something, if you don't have skin in the game as like Nassim Taleb would say, or somebody like that, you can't be making management decisions. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What do you all think about this in relation to the, I mean, I, I can't go 30 mm -hmm. minutes on LinkedIn without seeing somebody come up with the next big, hey, we're going to automate decision-making in this regard. That's the thing, right? Like everything is going to be automated. And like, if you're going to do that, it's going to be rules-based. If it's rules-based, there could be unintended consequences for anything you do, not to mention just like general errors that are made. I think uh, we've all like sat behind a keyboard and like uh, tried to recode stuff and like made mistakes, this sort of thing, which could definitely happen. But there's consequences for those people affected, especially if it's a selection or promotion or any other thing. And that affects people's lives in a substantial way. And as a programmer, you'd be like, well, I just point to the computer. And like, what are they going to do to it? You know, just turn it off. But people are impacted. Yeah, I'm interested yeah. to see where where people analytics plays a role here in terms of ethics and and government mm -hmm. and i feel like it's gonna be so hard to enforce like at what point are you done programming and the computer is now thinking and i don't know right like i yeah yeah it's it's fascinating to me i think for i was looking at you know some of the hacks for it back to neurodiversity like a lot of this ai stuff is pretty helpful so there's a really cool tool where you can tell uh this program what ingredients you have in the house and it'll tell you what meals you can make and that's mm. really great for people with executive dysfunction or, you know, yeah. challenging to cook. But in the workplace, I, I feel like, I don't know, I'm scared. I'm nervous. Yeah, but I don't feel like that's a decision. I feel like that's just be, giving people options. Somebody yeah. else that ultimately has to make the decision whether to cook or not, you know, yeah. or what, what meal to provide. But I, I see a lot of these things where it takes human decision-making completely out of it. And I mean, I really... If, if you just look forward, you know, a few months or a few years, this is all going to come down to regulation and the legality of things, because you have to have someone you can sue, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is why that, I think we discussed it maybe a month or two ago, the Workday lawsuit, where Workday's AI is being sued because as an employment agency, even though Workday is not an employment agency, because they need someone to sue when an AI is making decisions. And therefore, you you have to have some kind of accountability. You can't just say, "Oh, it's a black box." Oh, it's you know, it's just our new Chat GPT make a decision AI, and that's not how the world works. Yeah, I've been cautioned to uh, get in writing what I think is a good or a bad idea, and so I do that now. Like if I think that whether it's AI or just something else we're building or a new process or policy. If I don't think it is great, or I think there's a better way to do it that could provide, you know, better equity or adverse impact or all that stuff, I get it in writing. So if they come back looking for somebody, I can say, hey, I, I did advise against this, but this is a this is an interesting idea. So have you ever looked at APA's publication, like who did what and how much, what authorship order you should do? Have you seen that sheet from APA before? No, it's like a scorecard um, or something like that. It's like a scorecard, yeah. So it's really interesting. It's like you get a certain amount of points for like, did you come up with the idea? Did you develop yeah. the idea? Did you write? And I'm wondering if we could, if there's an option for 
AI programming in the same capacity. Like hold engineers accountable. Like yeah. you had the idea to uh, <laughs> select people based on this algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like who who fed the data or selected you know external information to add into it. But yeah, see, this is why I write everything alone or with one other person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard to decide. Well, uh, have, have y'all heard of uh, what's it called? Uh, code whisperer, code interpreter. It's related to. Uh, um, uh, chat GBT, uh, open AI, they've essentially given chat GBT tools now. So it's turned into a data scientist on its own. Like you can upload your own data set and say like, Hey, find me patterns in, uh, like my Spotify playlist or find me different, uh, issues in, in you know, the COVID reporting, all this sort of stuff. It is absolutely wild. Like I just, cold knows, like I kind of scoured Twitter for this sort of stuff constantly it'll like take a data set and you just be like hey uh find uh relationships and write me an apa style article on it and it does it in like 12 seconds it's it's freaking wild wild we should all be really worried because this directly (laughs) impacts us but now but like back back to it now the computer has tools like no one's telling it what to do you're getting the even further step away from a human programming it. It can go get its own tools, make its own decisions, correct its own errors. That's another like fascinating thing. It's like mm-hmm. if it runs into an error, it'll try several different iterations until it gets it right, stumbles upon the right answer and continue on. And of course it takes like no time whatsoever. We're in for a yeah. wild, wild time. Well, it's going to be really, really challenging for countries and governments and kind of the legal component I was saying a second ago to put, regulations around this. Um, I just, I have a link to it. I haven't sent it to either of you guys, but I saw this document that came up earlier today. It was a leaked Google document from Simone Wilson's blog. And it says, and it's talking about we, Google, we have no moat when it comes to AI, but neither does OpenAI. And they published in there basically some internal communications at Google saying like all the ways that these LLMs have been built have been open sourced. And therefore, all these companies all around the world and just like people in their garages, you know, everywhere mm-hmm. are building their own. And therefore, you know, even if you try to stamp it out at OpenAI or at Google or whoever else is doing it, um, you know, you're not going to be able to put that cat back in the bag at this point. Absolutely not. It, it's called code interpreter, FYI. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it takes its own tools and we're kind of past the point of even we're behind the curve. I'll just put it that way mm-hmm. of like this sort of ethical considerations. We should have been doing this when this uh, computers can never be held accountable in like 1978, whenever this came out. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. I, I'm helping some people formulate thoughts around AI. Like, what do we believe? What do we think? What's now? What's later? And, and we don't, we don't even know. We don't even right. know. I don't think with it. Hell, we started talking about chat GBT, like what, six months ago. Yeah. Totally different orientation now. Yeah, I think I think the danger is that people are excited to integrate it into everything, or that's that what I'm seeing. And I think I saw a really good piece. Um, I'll try to send it to y'all so you can link it. It's called something like <clears throat> AI is the new civil rights frontier. Oh wow. And, yeah. In and what way? I mostly I think selection, but even promotions, okay. or if you were to pull, like let's say you and I, you're my direct manager, Scott. Cole and I are peers, and the this video recall is sort of transcribing and recording and then scaling, scoring me on like competencies of communication, leadership, whatever, and there's a promotion coming up. You then go look at the scores I got from the video, 
and you're like, wow, Kelsey, it's not you. You're not it. It's definitely Cole because the scoring of the video says he's more competent as a leader. Yeah. And yeah. I thought you were going a totally different direction than that. I thought it was like, you get two resumes. One is Kelsey and one's an AI. You're like, I don't know. Should I hire the AI or should I hire Kelsey? That you know, is and, scary. Um... Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not far away from that. Exactly. <laughs> we're not far away from that, uh, which kind of segues us into like the final sort of thing. It was just a, um, a tweet by uh, Ethan Mollock, who we referenced probably too frequently but he's got some really great stuff kind of stuff so he uploaded his um research paper in a chat gpt and asked it to act as a reviewer mm. essentially saying like uh, this is an academic paper write a nitpicking review as review reviewer number one write as reviewer number two to make sure that they get cited more and a third one that like kind of agrees with it and it does and he says it provides fantastic feedback on things that he missed and different yeah. aspects that he could include in the paper wild <laughs> wild stuff i love well, it shows it. how much time people put into their reviews in these journals too <laughs> I mean, honestly the second one was the funniest one where it's like uh i think you forgot to cite chat gpt 2022 <laughs> this article it's like you brown noser trying to get your stuff you out know. there cited <laughs> I mean, there's so many, this is, this is so good for, I think I love it. Like I will be using similar things in the future because think about, you know, you shoot for, if you're trying to publish, you might shoot for your favorite journal, like the best journal, JAP or something. And then you wait a while and get feedback from them and say, Hey, at least I got some feedback. Yeah. We'll implement it and turn it in somewhere else. Now it's kind of like, you can maybe do this two or three times. And if you can get, you know, decision-making information from JAP involved, you might know exactly what they're looking for, or that editor in particular. That is a wonderful point because that that's one of my biggest uh, issues with the publishing game. So, like, you go out, you collect data, you run your analysis, you probably did some like funding on the front end just to get it, all this sort of stuff. You run the thing, you get the results, you write your paper, you send it to uh, the journal of interest, they get back to you in several months. Mm -hmm. revisions that takes a few months send it back mm -hmm. to them could be another couple months you're two years beyond when you actually conducted the study right That's, it's all old at that point you think about the implications for conferences right by the time you're presenting yeah. conferences, it's like that's really not i heard someone describe psyop as the most cutting edge workplace research out there and i was thinking this is a great place to learn about trends cumulative evidence think about maybe what we're where we're going next but it's definitely not like what's happening right now typically because of this process but think okay I've got was what was happening last september when we hit submit you know for yeah. the whatever well, the too, presentation yeah. was yeah yeah and i'm thinking about like open open science um like accessible not behind a paywall i think some of the criticisms there are like it's not as rigorous of a review you can submit your idea beforehand but like this process at the beginning and end of an open science journal would be great right like there's yeah. some well what about what do you, i don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast before what do you guys think about these preprint websites like the arxiv i don't know how, how you pronounce it but like where people they say like hey i submitted this to jap it's in two years worth of revisions but here's the results today um do you think that's a good practice bad i mean i i, I heard some people 
can't remember where I saw this, but they're basically saying this is the only place they go to anymore to see cutting edge science because the journals are all two years behind. I'm glad you brought it up. I've never heard of this. I, I would love to learn more. I, I can't believe that like JAP or the other journals don't allow this because they are like a publishing machine. They want to make money and just, yeah, I don't think they could stop it. Right. Cause they're not, they're not plagiarizing the whole piece, right? This is just like the results. Is that what you're saying? It, it, you put, it's just a preprint. You like essentially mm-hmm. say, Hey, here's what my paper is oh, about. Oh, so it, it's already, I gotcha. Okay. So it's already been approved uh, and it's uh, a collective commons or whatever the, uh, I think it's pretty is. common in like the harder sciences, hmm. you know, like, you know, chemistry, physics, cosmology, you know, but uh, I think it is making inroads into the softer sciences as well. And I think there's some co- like competitors too. This isn't the only one, but I'll put a link to the ARXIV. I was just going to say, it's really interesting to me that it's more accessible to people, but I also worry about them being able to translate it into what it actually means in context, right? Not just taking it and run with it, but. Well, Chad GBT is going to be the new Malcolm Gladwell who takes all the research and makes it accessible uh, mm-hmm. for everyone else. Synthesizes everything down. Absolutely. Well, but, there, um, there is this there is this argument with like say doctors. So like they knew exactly what they knew when they graduated from med school, and it, there's so many research papers that come out. You just can't stay on top of it. We see this in Iosite too. Like there's so much cool research going on, but. You, you can't read that much, especially as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I still put sweet and low in my tea. I think it tastes amazing, even though it causes cancer. <laughs> oh, I had no idea where you are going with that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is this an analogy? <laughs> metaphor? What are we? Yeah. I think, like, no, I think it, like that finding came out like the 80s. <laughs> and like, it tastes good. Uh, anyway, well, I think yeah, th- this is usually the time in which we completely run off the rails of the podcast, but um. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelsey, before I give you the final words, Scott, any parting notes for Kelsey? <laughs> Kelsey, this is a fantastic conversation. It's so nice to meet you. Uh, I hope to I hope to run into you at the line uh Psyop bathroom at the next one in Chicago. <laughs> that would be a special moment. Thank you, Scott. Yes, it would be very special. <laughs> I I cannot stand waiting in line, so I will not see you there, Kelsey. But I have enjoyed this conversation quite a bit, and you're an amazing human being, and thanks for being here. But uh, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People on Likes podcast with Colin Scott and Kelsey Colley. Thanks for joining us, Kelsey. Thanks, guys. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People on Likes podcast with Colin Scott. 